This morning's text is found in the second chapter of Haggai, verses 1 through 9. In the second year of Darius the king, in the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides among you. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple entirely and they took almost all the Jews out of the land of Judah into captivity in Babylon. Then, about 50 years later, Cyrus the Persian took over Babylon, brought that Babylonian kingdom to an end, and in the very next year, he pronounced a decree that allowed the Jews to return to their homeland in Israel and build the temple. And among those returning Israelites probably were Haggai and Zechariah. And the account of what happened in those early days after the return is found in the book of Ezra. And Ezra sums up for us in chapter 5 what these two prophets working side by side accomplished. And I want to read that little summary for you to set the stage for Haggai's ministry. In Ezra 5.1, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God, helping them. So God raised up Haggai and Zechariah to help get the building of the temple done, which had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and his forces. The work began, according to Haggai 1.15, on the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year of the reign of Darius, which in our reckoning is September 21, 520 B.C. So that you can see there was a lapse of some 18 years between the 538 return and the 520 building beginning. And that lapse of 18 years or so is part of the reason why Haggai came on the scene preaching the message that he did to get that building going. 
Now, the way Haggai motivates the Jews to build the temple is so powerful for us because we can see the things that cause the people to let languish in our own lives. And we'll get to that in just a moment. What I want to zero in mainly on is chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, which were just read. But since the book is small, I think what we can do is sort of get the lay of the land in the two chapters and see how 2, 1 to 9 fits into the whole thing. So let's do that first. The book is divided into four very distinct messages from the Lord. And you can tell where they are because each one is precisely dated. And so you can see where they separate. Let's look at these. The first message is chapter 1. It's delivered to Zerubbabel and Joshua by Haggai in the reign of Darius. As you can see from verse 1, the first day of the sixth month. That's August 29. 520 B.C. And that message goes through the whole chapter of chapter 1. The second message starts in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, and is dated in verse 1 of that chapter, the 21st day of the seventh month. That's October 17, 520 B.C. The third message is found in chapter 2, verses 10 to 19, and you can see in verse 10 that it's dated On the 24th day of the ninth month, that's December 18, 520 B.C. And then the final message in verses 20 to 23 comes on the same day as the third. So the uh, messages cover roughly a little less than four months that we have here in Haggai. And one of the things that you can see if you look at these four messages long enough is that the first and the third are similar. And the second and the fourth are similar. When you see a pattern like that, it's, uh, it ought to make your ears perk up and ask, now why is that? What's the author doing here? Now, if we had more time, I'd love to, to develop that pattern all the way through, but we only have time to look briefly at the first and the third as the context for the second. So that's what I want to do. Briefly at the first and the third, and then spend most of our time looking at the second message in 2, 1 to 9. Let's look at the first message first in chapter 1. It, it's a revelation given through Haggai to the governor and the priest and the people. And what it's intended to do is give the reason why the people for these 18 years have lived lives of perpetual frustration and discontentment. Look at verses 4 through 6 of chapter 1. Is it time... For you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, he's referring to the temple, while this house lies in ruins. Now, therefore, consider how you have fared or consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And you earn, he who earns wages, earns wages to put them in a bag with holes. What a graphic picture of continual frustration and discontentment. Nothing satisfies, even though they're working hard to satisfy themselves. And there's no way to pass over that lesson, is there, without feeling the application to us. It's pretty simple to apply. 
If you devote yourself to sowing and eating and drinking and clothing yourself and earning wages and neglect your ministry, you're going to lead a life of perpetual frustration, discontentment. If you wonder why everything goes sour in your life, nothing ever quite satisfies fully, check out your priorities and see whether you're devoting yourself to your paneled house instead of to the work of God. Or, to put it another way, if you spend your time and energy seeking comfort and security from this world, and don't spend yourself for the glory of God, you can count on it. The sour fruit you will reap from those labors will be frustration and depression and guilt and failure to be satisfied in everything you do. Now, the reason I mention the glory of God is because of verse 8. Haggai's remedy for frustration goes like this. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may appear in my glory, says the Lord, or that I might be glorified in it. Both then, centuries ago, and now, the real problem is not the neglect of a building. The real problem is a failure to love the glory of God. Right? The temple of the Old Testament existed for the glory of God. The church of the New Testament exists for the glory of God. The person who spends his energy on his own private interests does not devote himself with the gift that God has given him to the ministry will find that he is failing or simply giving evidence to the fact that he is failing to love the glory of God. Everything else is more important. And the sour fruit of this failure is a life of chronic frustration. As Jesus said, to paraphrase, he who seeks to save his life, he's going to lose it in continual frustrations and discontentment. But he who loses his life in the exercise of his gifts in the ministry that God calls you to will find it deep and rich and fulfilling. The situation here in Jerusalem is summed up in verse 9. It goes like this. You have looked for much, and lo, it has come to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because my house lies in ruins while you busy each of you with his own house. That's pretty straight and direct, isn't it? But good news in verses 12 to 15. Haggai reports that Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people obey. They set themselves to work on the temple of the Lord after these 18 years. And God goes to work for them, working in their hearts to motivate them and bringing blessing upon them, which we'll see more of in a moment. Now, let's skip from message number one over message number two, which is 2, 1 to 9, and go to chapter 2, verse 10, verse 10 to 19. I found this message very hard to understand. Uh, the translations disagree with each other in lots of ways, and it was just hard to get through to. And if preachers ever sound confusing, you know what the usual reason is? They're confused. I'll try my best now to make this plain, and if it doesn't sound plain, it's because it isn't plain, probably, to me. 
But I think I've got a handle on what's going on here in verses 10 to 19. Evidently, there's a little parable in verses 10 to 14. I'm just going to sum that up for you instead of reading it. Evidently, what's happened is that as the people have gone to work on the temple, they've gotten the notion that since they're working on something holy, they become holy. They touch it, they get holy. And Haggai comes along and says, on the contrary, if you're unclean and you touch the temple, it's desecrated. You're not sanctified. Did you hear Charles Swindoll on the radio this week? He said, pick up a, a lump of mud with white gloves and the mud never gets glovey. <laughs> Vintage Swindoll. But the gloves get very muddy. That's, that's the point of verses 10 to 14. If you, if you work on the temple with your lives sinful... You desecrate it. It doesn't sanctify you as though touching something holy would transfer holiness over to you. He applies the parable in verse 14. So let's read that. So is it with this people and with this nation before me, says the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. So... Even though they began a few months ago to work on the temple, and that was obedience, their obedience is very imperfect. They bring to the temple unclean hands. Their lives aren't shaped up yet. And they think that just because they're doing a good deed maybe at church and their lives are rotten, that the church work will sort of purify them. And Haggai says, no way, it doesn't work that way. It works in the reverse. So now what's Haggai going to do? What's the message from the Lord to confront the people now in this situation? That we find in verses 15 to the end of the unit. It goes something like this. Uh, the first part in verses 15 to 17, he tells the people to consider how they ought to be acting now on the basis of remembering how it was with them before they began to obey by building the temple. See, that's the dividing line that, that Haggai's working with. How did it go before and how's it gone since? In verses 15 to 17, deal with reminding them of how it went before. I'll read part of this. Pray now and consider what will come to pass from this day on. That is how you should live now. Remembering, then drop down to verse 17. I smote you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail, and you did not return to me, says the Lord. So he directs their attention back to those crummy days of frustration before they started building. And he says, I think the implication is, if it went that rotten with you when you were disobeying me by not building, then surely you don't want to press on in disobedience now because things might start to go rotten again. That's verses 15 to 17. Then the next unit, 16 to 18, points them backwards again, but this time it's not to the uh, misery that they experienced before they started building. It's the blessing that they've been promised since they started building. In verse 19, the prophet uh, says, Since that day, is the seed yet in the barn? Do the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranates, and the olive tree still yield nothing? From this day on, I will bless you. Now, that was probably the hardest verse for me to understand in the whole book. What do those questions mean? What's he getting at? And uh, here's what I came up with. Um, it's been three months since they started building. He asked, where's the seed? 
Is it in the barn? And I think the answer is, it's not in the barn, it's in the ground. We planted it. In other words, blessing is on the way. And what about the, the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree? Are, are they yielding? Well, no, they're not yielding yet. It's only been three months and it's winter time. But then he closes with this promise. From this day, and I think this day probably refers to the day you began to build. From this day on, I will bless you. So, even though it's only been three months, and the seed's still in the ground, nothing's popped up yet, and the trees haven't born yet, I am for you. I'm not against you. Since you've begun to obey me, even though it's an imperfect obedience, I'm working with you, I'm going to bless you right on. And the implication then is, surely you don't want to keep your hands dirty and go ahead sinning when a God like that is on your side, summoning you to holiness? So, I think that is what Haggai was trying to say in message number one and message number two. And you can see, I mean three. So you can see when you put one, chapter one, and chapter two, ten to nineteen together, they're really talking about the same thing. The, the dividing line of when they started to build and how it went bad before, how it's gone good and will go good since then, and how they should act in view of that great division in their lives. Now, that's the, the pieces of bread in the sandwich. Let's go into the meat. This is the, this is the really good stuff in Haggai in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. When I was working on this last summer up at Rollins' place, uh, I just got so excited about this because as a pastor, you'll, you'll hear, this is really a sermon for me this morning, you'll hear the, the implications for the pastoral office coming out, but I think it has implications to everybody who's ever undertaken to do anything for the Lord. These are exciting Words of encouragement here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Verse 1, it's dated, 21st day of the seventh month. Now, that's just a little less than a month after they began building the temple. And evidently, though it's been less than a month, they quit. Or either they've grown very slack in their work. Because... Haggai comes on with the message, take courage, get on with the work. He wouldn't have said that unless they had slacked off. And what makes this message so relevant and practical today is that we can see our own discouragements in these people in Jerusalem. And the words of encouragement that come just go home so helpfully when we put ourselves in their place. So let's look at it. Verse 3. Here's the verse that sets us up to understand why they're so discouraged and why their hands have grown limp and their knees are are buckling in the work. Who is left among you, Haggai asks, who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? Solomon's temple. How do you see it now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Now, there's the, the reason why they're discouraged. The memory is still alive of how glorious Solomon's temple was. What a house! Through all the world it was famous. And here they are, some less than 70 years since that temple was built. It stood on this very spot. It was the uh, greatest achievement of Solomon. It was the place to which people came from all over the world. It was the center of holy worship for centuries. But instead of inspiring these, these uh, exiles who've come back, it breaks their heart. They look at the little building they're working on, which is just nothing compared to the Temple of Solomon, and they say, 
Oh, what's the use? We'll never produce anything of that quality. We're just wasting our time. Nothing beautiful or worthwhile is going to come out of these labors. We got along without the temple in Babylon. We can get along without it here. Better to have a beautiful memory than a crummy imitation, right? And so they talked themselves into doing nothing. And they quit work and they laid down their trowel. And their hands became slack. Now, does that sound like any experience you've ever had? Comparing your little sphere of influence with some great accomplishment of somebody else and feeling, put your feet up, watch TV, no point in working. I think anybody who's ever undertaken a work for the cause of Christ has felt that kind of discouragement. The sense that you work and you work and the product seems so paltry that you produce You pour yourself into something week after week and month after month and the fruit is so minimal. And then you look back at history, Calvin, Luther, or you look across town and you see some great achievement and the little temple you're working on seems so trivial. The little class, the little family, the little projects, the little church. And you're just tempted to get discouraged and throw in the towel, put your feet up, watch TV, coast the rest of your life. No point in putting out. It's not worth it. Nothing comes of it anyway in comparison to what others have done. Bethlehem is a prime target for that kind of discouragement. You know why? Because Bethlehem is the Solomon's Temple of the Baptist General Conference. This church had a glory once that was so great that people all over the conference still talk about Bethlehem in the past tense. Biggest church in the conference gave one time 50% of its income to missions or close thereto. Had a thousand people in Sunday school once upon a time. Spawned more leaders in this conference than any other single church. Solomon's temple. Glorious. And I can imagine that some... Sunday school teacher can remember the halcyon days of Bethlehem when this auditorium was packed with Sunday school classes and they had kids running all over the place and they look at their four or five little kids and want to just throw in the towel. It just doesn't compare. It doesn't measure up. It doesn't seem worth it. And most of you, whether a Sunday school teacher or whatever your life calling is, have felt that kind of discouragement that what you're doing for Christ is of so little significance that you might as well quit. Nobody would notice the difference anyway. And if that's you, or ever has been you, or might be you tomorrow, the words of encouragement that come here from Haggai are just great. So let's see what he says to this people. He comes with a command, first of all, a very heartening command in verse 4. Yet... Now, take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work. Clearly, God does not agree with their assessment about the importance of their work, about whether it's worthy of pursuing or not. If they think their work on the temple is of so little significance that they should quit, they're wrong. And God's going to straighten them up. Take courage, work is the word from the Lord. And then he gives two grand arguments. 
for why they should keep right on working at their little paltry temple. And both of these are crucial for us. Number one, verses four and five, or the end of four and five. Work for, argument number one, I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides among you. Fear not. Now, there are four reasons why this argument has tremendous power for those people, and I think for us. First, isn't it true that you regard the importance and the value of a job highly in proportion to the dignity and importance of the people who are willing to do the job? And the application of that principle to this situation would be, if God says, I'm going to work beside you on this job, you better not call it trivial. You see the implications? God says, I'm with you in this work. How dare you call this work unimportant? I set my hand to this work. The second way that this promise hits us as powerful is that it is not only a promise to work beside us. It's not just that God is there beside us, setting his hand to the work. God is in us, enabling us to delight in the work. Go back to chapter 1, verse 13, and look at what God did as soon as they began to obey. Verse 13, I am with you, says the Lord. That's the same promise they get over in 2.5. And then here's the, the, uh, the way it works itself out in their experience. I am with you, says the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord. So the promise to be with us is not merely a promise to sort of stand beside us and kind of nudge us. It's to get inside of us and stir up our spirit. God is not interested in crusty diehards in the work of the ministry. He wants living, free, vibrant servants who love the work of the Lord. That's the ideal. And that he promises by going inside and going to work on our motives and our hearts so that we set our hand to the task freely and joyfully. Third way that this promise of being with us hits home is by that reference to the exodus. Or whenever you hear the exodus referred to, one thing comes to your mind. A God who can split the seas. That's what a Jew would have thought of anyway. And so what he's saying is here, when we read, for example, Exodus 19.4, God says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And if that doesn't encourage us, well, there's one more thing that might. One more way this promise hits home. There were people standing around saying, Ah, I can remember those great days. Man alive. Solomon's temple, what a temple it was. And then they hear these words from uh, Haggai, and if they know their Bible, they say, hmm, that sure sounds familiar. Those words sound really familiar. And they ought to, because in First Chronicles 28.20, David, just before he died, said to son Solomon to build the temple and listen to the words he used to encourage him. David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong, 
Be of good courage. Work. Fear not. Nor be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work of the service of the house of the Lord is finished. You see the implication? It's the same promise. The house they're so excited about. The one they'd love to get back to. The same Lord, the same promise is made to these workers as they go to work on this seemingly trivial, insignificant little building after the exile. And those four things ought to move us and ought to have moved them to work. But he's still not done encouraging them and the best is yet to come for me. This is what got me so excited this summer when I was working on this. And It's found in verses 6 to 9. It's the second argument that he uses to encourage the people to keep on working even though the results look so paltry and trivial. Fear not. Why? For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. And here it comes. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place will be prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, take courage, you build more than you see. All you can see is a paltry little temple, but God promises to make your work Filled with His glory and your labors a million times more valuable than you can presently imagine. Now, before we apply that to ourselves directly, we've got to ask, how is that promise fulfilled in Israel? I think it was fulfilled like all prom- prophecies in stages, or most prophecies, in stages. And that the final fulfillment is not yet, in the 20th century even. Here's the sequence of fulfillment that I see in Scripture. By the time Jesus came on the scene, four or five centuries later, Herod the Great had taken this temple of Zerubbabel and finished it into a magnificent temple which was as great as Solomon's. So there's a kind of stage of fulfillment. It was a magnificent temple that Jesus related to in his day. In 70 A.D., it is leveled to the ground by the Romans. But Jesus had said in John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I'm going to raise it up. And John adds, but this he spoke of the temple of his body. Jesus saw a direct continuity between the Old Testament building and himself. In the Old Testament, the temple was where we meet God. In the New Testament, Jesus is where we meet God. Now, if we look on into the future, some interpreters say, in Jerusalem there will be built another great temple someday. And that depends on whether or not you take certain passages in Ezekiel 41 following and 2 Thessalonians 2 very literally or more spiritually. 
The more important thing for me than to resolve that question finally is to look at the temple conditions in the final state when the whole history is over. And that we find in Revelation 21-22. John sees a vision. The new Jerusalem, the church, the city of God, coming down to earth where it will be forever. And he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. The point is this. God had a purpose for a temple in Haggai's day. And all the people could see was a little paltry building getting started. They could not begin to see what he was going to make of the temple. So God comes to them with a word of promise. And the word of promise is, take courage. You build more than you see. The heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and the treasures of all the earth are mine and I will fill the temple that you build with a glory that will go beyond anything you've ever imagined. No matter how paltry and trivial it looks to you now. And so here's the principle that we must apply to ourselves and hold on to forever. God takes small, imperfect things and makes them a habitation for His glory forever. And oh, how we should take courage from that in our little spheres. You may feel like you do nothing for the Lord. Maybe you should do more. But where you do what you do, take courage. You build more than you see, no matter what you do. And I think that's the message of Advent. It's a good way to start Advent. Because can you imagine a better word for God to give to Mary when she's about nine and a half months pregnant or when Jesus is four years old or three and making a regular nuisance of himself with all of his questions then Mary, take courage. It's heavy. You build more than you see in this man. And that's the way it is with every one of us. There is no trifle in the kingdom. Nothing is trivial if God is at work on it with you. He will shake the heaven and the earth and bring splendor into whatever task you faithfully perform, no matter how paltry and trivial it seems to you now.